invite you to uh, turn to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1. We're going to read verses 3 through the first part of 9. Yes. Um, actually, through 9. Yes. <coughs> it's on page uh, 1770 in your pew Bibles. Uh, 1771. The words will also be on the screen. 1 Corinthians 1, beginning at verse 3. This is Paul's greeting to the Corinthian church. <coughs> Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. <coughs> Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Christ our Lord, is faithful. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We enter into this Advent season. We are called to recognize, identify, and acknowledge the sobering reality of our fallen humanity and our desperate need for divine intervention for our salvation. <clears throat> We're reminded to examine ourselves, our thoughts and words and deeds, and also our attentiveness to the things of God. Because Advent is a time for new beginnings and fresh perspectives. It's a time to contemplate with wonder and awe how God invaded history on our behalf. The steadfast, unfailing love of God, even despite our shortcomings, is a dominant theme as we expectantly wait for the light of Christ to be renewed in our lives. Now, these blessings extended by Paul to the Corinthian church are pronounced upon a congregation we find out later in the letter that had forgotten that their spiritual gifts, their gifts were to be used for the edification of the church and the glory of God rather than for promoting themselves and their own glory. So Paul begins this letter with these grace-filled words of blessing, which if you're familiar with the Corinthian situation might seem a little bit out of place. Eugene Peterson writes, the people of Corinth had a reputation in the ancient world as an unruly, hard-drinking, sexually promiscuous bunch of people. And so when we consider Paul's very positive words of blessing on these people, it might make us wonder if Paul forgot who he was writing the letter to. Did Paul forget about the disruption, the gossip, the, the sexual confusion, the abuse of gifts that characterized this community? Did Paul forget about the commotion that this congregation continued to generate? 
Now, I do this all the time, but I've noticed this in other people too. Often, um, we express feelings of surprise or doubt or, or disbelief or amusement, that combination of feelings by speaking aloud the one word question, seriously? Seriously? Often that exclamation is followed up by the, the, the other question, who does that? Seriously? Who does that? Well, this is what came to my mind as I studied these opening verses from Paul to this particular congregation. He greets them with grace and mercy and blessings. Seriously? He confidently proclaims that because of their faith, they will one day be found blameless before the Lord. Seriously? Paul, who does that? Well, brothers and sisters, the good news this morning is that God does that. God always comes to us first. God always takes the initiative, meeting us right where we are, pouring out on us immediately his grace and his blessings. And so in this letter, Paul is going to deal with many problems suffered by the Corinthian church. But Paul doesn't simply put a Band-Aid on these problems. He gets to the root by pointing out to the Corinthians right off the bat what is true of them in Christ. In these first few verses of Paul's letter, he asserts that because of what is true about the believer in Christ, all problems will eventually be resolved in him. I've said it before in sermons, Christ is the answer. And so this passage reminds us that the motivation for our conduct as a church or a body of believers and also for our conduct as individual believers is the grace that has already been showered upon us in Christ. The grace that has already been showered on us in Christ. You know, as I think about my educational life and my vocational life thus far, both of them, I suppose. I am forever grateful to my teachers and my professors and my mentors uh, that loved me enough to, to see me in the light of God's grace upon my life. They chose, despite my many shortcomings, believe me, they saw my potential. And when I did fall short of their expectations or strayed from the path that they had helped set me on, they refused to turn their backs on me. Instead, they confronted me in firm but encouraging ways so that I could, could put things together, back together with a sense of hope rather than with a sense of despair and a sense of failure. I mean, looking back, God has consistently blessed me with communities that loved me and did not cast me off because of my failures or sins. They chose to see in me God-given abilities and potential. They taught me sometimes through tough love that gifts without grace disrupt the body of believers. Which brings us back to Paul and the Corinthians. See, Paul discerns the gifts and the potential and the promise of this Corinthian congregation. 
And he sees it through the lens, not of what they are capable of doing on their own necessarily, uh, not through their human work or conduct, but through the work of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of God in them. That is the important thing to Paul. And, and you, do you know something? You know something? There is actually, I was thinking, a commendable feature that comes with people who have been forgiven of great sin. There's a commendable feature of, of terrible sinners, terrible sinners who have been forgiven. Something that great sinners have that actually work to their benefit, and it's simply this. Great sinners tend to respond more quickly to great grace than do people who are not aware of their sin or who have not sinned so greatly. The person who has a great history of sin in their life, in other words, a lot of self-imposed baggage, when they turn to Christ, the guilt for that sin disappears, which leaves this great capacity in their hearts left to love God and to accept the wonderful grace of God that is far greater than all of their accumulated sins. And that is how Paul, believe it or not, reacts to this very sinful and immoral Corinthian church. He reacts with grace. As he writes to them in these first nine verses, he's basically saying, look at who you are. Look at what you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is only after he tells them what they have in the, the wonderful riches of God's grace that he moves on to exhort them and encourage them and rebuke them in the ways that they should be going. <clears throat> Perhaps we too need some exhortation, some encouragement, and some rebuke saturated in grace. After all, it is extremely difficult for us to maintain our focus in these days that lead up to Christmas and that celebration. It's so easy for us in the midst of all the gift giving and gift receiving and parties and so on to forget the true purpose of this season. I mean, we can get lost in all of those other things and and forget the amazing gift that we received so long ago, Jesus Christ, who came first as a little helpless baby and will come again as the conquering king of the universe. Brothers and sisters, that's a big deal. And so as we consider God's grace upon our lives and all of the implications that come with that, I think it would be helpful in our Christian walk to regularly look at our behavior and our words and our thoughts in light of the gospel. And I would guess that you, like me, might, in evaluating those things, occasionally say to yourselves, seriously, does a Christian do that? Seriously, does a Christian think that way, talk that way, act that way? Am I reflecting the light and the love of Jesus Christ, these amazing gifts poured out onto my life, in my home, in my community, in my school, in my church? 
Or does my conduct at times compromise and diminish my witness? What about you? For believers, these are both congregational and individual questions. Corinth, for instance, was a congregation of believers whose individual and collective behavior compromised their witness, no question. Also, according to Paul, it diminished the power and effectiveness of their God-given gifts. <coughs> now, as I read this text, I actually kind of questioned whether uh, these verses of blessing upon wayward Christians was an appropriate passage leading into Advent. I mean, what are we as Christians to learn or discern or take away from this text? Why would, why would writers of the lectionary put this text leading into this season of Advent? Well, I think it is because these verses remind us of God's work in us and on our behalf. And so we come into the Advent season with this this powerful reminder that the, the unfailing love of God is not dependent upon us or our gifts in any way. Our gifts and abilities come only through the grace of God and are to be used to edify the church and glorify him. Verse three and four say, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to say, I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. The grace of God is amazing. It's wonderful. It's unfathomable. I mean, we can think we can imagine how broad and expansive and deep it is, but, but brothers and sisters, it is unfathomable. It also is unique in that it has past benefits, it has present benefits, and it has future benefits, and all of them are in some way represented in this text. The past benefits are re represented here, where Paul says the grace of God which was given, past tense to you, literally, which was given to you and confirmed in you. Now this for those of you who are geeks about it, like I am sometimes, this is in the Greek aorist tense, which implies an action completed at a particular definite moment in time, but with lasting implications. In other words, when it comes to grace, Paul is saying that you do not work for it. You are not going to get it someday when you qualify for it. It has already been given to you at the moment of your conversion. Now, perhaps we should back up even a step further and ask, what is grace? Well, grace is the favor of God, unmerited and unrepayable. It doesn't ever need to be paid back. It does, it does not expect it to be paid back. God doesn't expect it to be paid back. More important, in this case, um, when it comes to grace with regard to salvation, it's something that we could never pay back. In fact, the grace of God, as we have defined it here, as biblical scholars have defined it for centuries, the grace of God cannot, absolutely cannot, coexist with three things. Guilt, obligation, or human merit. Did you get that? Grace cannot coexist with these three things. 
guilt, obligation, or human merit. Now, you know, it happens in different forms. It happens in different ways. But there are a lot of people out there trying to work their way to God. People who believe in varying measure that they will get to heaven through some human effort. Maybe if I just express enough guilt, maybe if I just beat myself up enough, God will reward that. Maybe, maybe if I do just enough of the, the right good things, Maybe if I do just enough of the good things in this life, even though I do it grudgingly, maybe God will reward that. Maybe if I'm just the right kind of person, maybe if I can be just righteous enough on my own, God will reward that. Brothers and sisters, no. Grace cannot coexist with guilt or obligation or human merit. Some people believe that they can earn grace by thinking or saying or doing the right things. But, you know, how can that be? How can that be? Let's use reason here. Because God's word teaches us that our righteousness is like filthy rags in the sight of God. You know what that means? That means even our best efforts, our best efforts, us on our best day, us in our best moments, aren't enough to meet God's standard. Which means that the good things that we are capable of thinking and saying and doing are simply not good enough to impress God. And you know, when you think about it, if they were enough to impress God, then we would seriously have to question God's standards, wouldn't we? We're talking about a holy God here. But nevertheless... Nevertheless, God empowers us and enables us through his own strength and his own potential to do things in this life and in this world that please him. And so one of the present benefits of grace is just that. It is our spiritual giftedness. And what was true for the Corinthians is true for us as well, that God has given us these spiritual gifts in spite of our sin. God, in other biblical terms, uh, lavishes us, lavishes on us a provision of everything that we need to grow in our faith. And Paul says here that spiritual gifts are proof of our testimony. Verse 5 and 6 say, For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. It was confirmed in you. And so in spite of our sin, in spite of the sins that we've committed, in spite of the sin that we are still desperately trying to root out of our lives, we are also eternally secure. Verse 6 uses that word confirmed. In other words, it is absolutely definite. It's actually a legal term in the Greek referring to a guarantee that settles a transaction. And so what Paul is telling them is that God has settled the contract 
on your salvation. God has settled the contract of your salvation. And that, when you think about it, based on all of the other stuff that Scripture has to say about the matter, makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Because, look, God tells us in his word what we need to do in order to get saved, how that works. God tells us that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And God promises that once he saves you, he will cleanse you with the blood of Christ. Now, after all that, do you really think that God would ever abandon you? Do you really think that God could ever abandon you? Will God ever let you go? Will God go back on any one of his promises? Never. Why? Well, it says in verse 9, God, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. God is faithful. And the grounds for his faithfulness in this particular instance is his grace in calling us into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. Now, this, I think, is a reference to the doctrine that the righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed or transferred to believers in Jesus Christ. It's a theme that Paul writes about in most of his letters, and it is implied every time he mentions that beautiful phrase, in Christ, in Christ, for those of you who are in Christ. Because... It is all about Christ and not our own abilities. Paul is confident of the Corinthians' future success. Paul is confident of our future success as well. So he's telling these people that are so plagued with problems and division and mixed motives that one day God would ensure that they will be presented before him absolutely blameless, unimpeachable, and faultless. The church is a messy, gritty, frustrating place at times. But God intervenes. First, to bless us with the gift of his presence, and second, to direct and challenge and confront and encourage us. This word of blessing invites us to draw nearer to God in this Advent season, uh, just as we are, knowing that God loved us enough to bless us with the hope of the world, his son, Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. So even though God comes to us right where we are, he says, don't expect to stay that way. I've got plans for you. How can Paul be so optimistic? Because he is confident in the faithfulness and grace of God. May his confidence in our great God be ours as well. Amen. Let's pray.